Hi, it's Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. Ben Rhymes is our special guest tonight. Hi, Ben. Hi, Steve. Really glad to have you here. It is the 6th of June. We started a half an hour late. Does that mean the kids are in bed? The kids are in bed, and uh, I checked 10 minutes ago. Eyes were closed. <laughs> I hope that means we're asleep. Um, Not necessarily, right? <laughs> The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Uh, our School Leadership Summit in March was a ton of fun. All those sessions are up. The recordings are free to watch. Uh, coming up uh, this month is our, our, our unconference event around the ISTE conference, sort of the um, kind of the, the festival. So ISTE Unplugged, uh, which starts with the all-day unconference hack education this year with Audrey Waters the Saturday beforehand. It's free. And because it's the Saturday before the conference starts, you don't even have to be registered for the conference. So if you're in the San Antonio or Texas area and you want to come just for Saturday, please feel free to. Again, that's an all-day unconference event. And then there's a party that night. Um, there's the Bloggers Cafe. There's the Global Education Summit. Uh, all at ISTEunplugged.com. Uh, coming up this summer, we're, uh, we're just about to announce the, the dates for the Homeschool Conference, the Worldwide Homeschool Conference, which will be in September, or in August. In September will be the STEMX Conference, that's STEM and everything else, sponsored by Hewlett Packard. In October, the Future of Libraries Conference, um, Library 2.013 on the 18th and 19th of October. And then the Global Education Conference, which we don't have a new logo yet, but uh, a week, five days, Tons of fun, 24 hours a day in November for the Global Education Conference. These are all free. Go to web20labs.com to learn more. Coming up on this show, Larry Ferlazzo next week talks about his new book, Self-Driven Learning. I think it'll be Larry's third time on the show. Always really, really interesting to talk to Larry. Um, anyway, brand new book. I'm very excited to read it. Matt Hearn on his book, uh, well, his books, and on the topic of de-schooling. Uh, Will Richardson on Why School on July 9th, and Don Winkle on Student Entrepreneurship and the Real Flip Learning, and then scheduled way out in September, Doug Johnson on his new book, The Indispensable Librarian. We're tra still trying to reschedule friends, Johansson on his book, The Click Moment. If you are a business book reader, this is a book to read, uh, and I'm going to make some really what I think are fun connections to education. And we'll hope that some others have read it and be interested in the same. Uh, Okay, Ben. We're going to do a little. We're going to start a little early here. One of the things about uh, Franz's book, The Click Moment, is that he basically shows how most business success is actually um, not planned but inadvertent, and often the matter of luck and chance. But the stories get told backwards, as though they were stories of premeditated success. And one of the points I take from that is that we often find it very easy to categorize a group of people as successful when it could just as easily be another group if the circumstances had been different. And do we have a large body of students who don't feel successful, or don't feel like good learners, not because of their own efforts, but because of the unique combination of circumstances that led them to where they are? Wow. That's a that's an excellent point. Uh, and, and before I uh, talk about the students, um, I think it's a great point about the the click moment. Uh, I had a flashback to uh, 
uh, From Good to Great. Uh, I don't know if you've read that uh, book. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. it identifies these really great, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, and they're going back and they're analyzing all these very amazing, wonderful companies and what were they able to do to whether, you know, the, the hedgehog strategy and, and burning the rafts and all of that, um, trying to focus on, on what caused them to be successful. And the interesting thing is, you know, just a few years after that book was published, one of the companies that they highlighted as being one of these models of a great company was Circuit City. And it completely folded. <laughs> um, so certainly uh, it, it, it's not a model for lasting. So anyway, that just popped into my head. I apologize. Yeah. No, it's, um, a good, it's a good point. He tells the story of his own first book called The Medici Effect, mm -hmm. which became very successful because it was used by diversity officers in large companies. And, and people actually told the story of a brilliant marketing strategy that he had created. And his response was, you know, actually that was complete luck. I didn't intend that. I didn't even think of it. But if you think about students and you think about the a Pygmalion effect and you think about our expectations for students and where they live and grow up and the kind of influence the, the adult influences they have do we do we accept a story of talent versus no talent that's actually not accurate right, right. and, do, and it, is it a, is it a moral imperative to recognize that that there are no defective students or children that this categorization that we do of students who are successful and not is in some ways terribly arbitrary. Well, I, 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 think, uh, I, I think that's a very viable, um, oh, that's a big list of names there. Uh, that's a very viable um, uh, point. Um, and, and I think you see that when uh, students make uh, big transitions. Uh, in my district, uh, we have a, a consolidated campus. So we have all of our buildings all on one campus, and we see that um, more pronounced when students make a jump from building to building, from second grade to third grade, because they're going to a new building, from fifth grade to sixth grade. And some might argue, well, you know, there are diff it's different buildings or different climates, but um, I, I think a lot of times student success is built upon and, and predicated upon uh, the, the fact that students maybe maybe they are or aren't talented. Um, but they have figured out, uh, you mentioned earlier before we got started, uh, Skinnerism, they have figured out which levers they need to press or in, in, in what order those levers need to be pressed in order to produce the results that teachers are looking for. Now, I'm not saying that uh, to be pessimistic and saying that's what our students are doing, um, but it's certainly easy to do that. And uh, when you make that jump to the next building, you go to junior high or from junior high to high school you're in a completely different setting and you have to figure out all of these social norms and, and uh, expectations and levers again um, of what's going to cause you to be successful in, in that new environment and with those new teachers. And, and I, I, I would go along with that, what you said. Well, we've gotten ahead of ourselves. Okay, so here's the map. Those of you who are in the room, you can indicate where you're listening from. Look to the left of the map for the star icon. It's the second one down. You double click on that and then click on the map. Feel free to put a note in the chat. I promise we will be talking about virtual and online book clubs. So <laughs> <laughs> hey, we got a nice geographically diverse group. Ooh. Australia, Ooh. 
couple in Asia, it looks like. So I'm guessing... That's exciting. Well, let us know. Tell us in the chat where, so I don't, so I don't make an uneducated guess. And we'll we'll move forward, but we'll um, so the map won't be there. But please do note in the chat your location, time, anything you'd like to tell us about where you are. I saw someone from Hawaii, and I misspelled it. So Ben, there is a, a mighty bell space for this session. It was actually on starting virtual book clubs that I created uh, some weeks, months ago. But there's the link for mm -hmm. those of you who, who use Mighty Bell or like it. I previously consulted for okay. Mighty Bell, so there's full disclosure there. I don't consult for them currently, but I really like the concept. It's a sort of curation space for content and conversation. And there are about 25 people in that space talking about holding virtual book clubs, so hopefully we can keep that conversation going if you're interested. Okay, so let's start talking about um, Book Club 106. And uh, tell us what, why you chose 106. I know there's a connection, but, but uh, what's the, what, for those who don't know, what's the connection there? Um, so 106 is a reference to DS 106, or Digital Storytelling 106 which is a digital storytelling class. Uh, it's actually a computer science class being run under the guise of a digital storytelling class uh, by Jim Groom, uh, Martha Burtis, and a few other people over at the University of Mary Washington. And I believe you've had Jim on the uh, your podcast before, correct? I have. I really like Jim. We talked about a domain of one's yeah. own. Yep. Exactly, um, and uh, and DS106 is um, is a MOOC, but not a MOOC in the sense that most people think of MOOCs when they look at uh, Coursera or Udacity and some of these other large, you know, thousands of people in a single course. It's a it's a connected, I guess you could say, a connected or connectivist type MOOC. Uh, for those of you that might be listening, that uh, uh, participated in ET MOOC. That was run by George Kuros and a few other people uh, just this last winter. Um, it's really uh, based on conversations, discussions, uh, and DS106 is digital storytelling. So it's based around using uh, remixing uh, remixing the web uh, in ways to to tell uh, new stories or, or taking old stories um, and, and making them new. And that covers everything from creating animated GIFs to doing uh, remixed uh, videos, sounds like that. So I, I'm a huge digital storytelling buff. I love DS-106, and there are lots of other things that are attached to DS-106. They have DS-106 radio, and they've got a few other little things on the side. And so I said, I'm going to do Book Club 106, because, hey, why not? Uh, the more the merrier, and uh, it, uh, people, people were receptive to it. Uh, Jim, Jim said, awesome. He, he didn't give me the thumbs down. So, Well, I, I'm interested. Sort of book clubs are, by their very nature, kind of interactive, constructive, as, you know, sort of highly participative. The, the name kind of you know, sends this message to, to those who are sort of in the know that there's something, there's a connection here. Um, there's this deeper question for me of, the technology enabling new things or are trying to replicate things that we've liked using the technology. And I'm trying to figure out about online book clubs. 
Right? Do they do something that we wish we could have done and make it possible to have an, uh, sort of a virtual experience when we have trouble holding, most of us have trouble holding sort of physical book clubs, or is it an idea that we have that it's going to work and it's, and it, and it, for some reason, the technology doesn't really do what we think it's going to do. Where, you know, you've done two books now. Where, where mm -hmm. does this sort of fall into the mix? Is this a great use of the technology? Is it a good use of the technology? Is it a wish it would be better use? Uh, this somewhere, this falls somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. I would say the tools are good, uh, but I've been using all Google tools. Uh, to run it. I'm a big fan of the ethos of many many pieces loosely joined. So I've been using Google Plus, I've been using Google Moderator, I've been using Google Sites, and then I've been using Google uh, Forms and Docs to uh, collect information. Uh, and I, I did that part uh, partly out of my own, uh, I guess you could say, ignorance of some of Google's tools, and I wanted to learn some of that uh, and uh, better prepare myself for my own role that I serve in my district. Um, but I saw I saw where the tools could interact well with one another, complement each other, um, and not necessarily have to put all my eggs in one basket, so to speak. Um, and so something like uh, Google Plus, uh, the Hangouts was really nice because that tool worked very well. It allowed us to have this face-to-face -face synchronous conversation like you would in a regular book club, sitting down face to face, but then it also gives the advantage of being able to hit that record button, like you're doing with this this evening, um, so that people that couldn't participate and couldn't make that time, which of course is the difficult thing about any community-driven event. Well, I can't make Thursday night at 8:30, sorry, but I can come back over the weekend and I can watch the recording of the conversation. And that worked really well. There were some other elements of it, Google Moderator, that I had higher hopes for. Um, and uh, it didn't work as well as maybe something like a, a forum, like a Google Plus community, or, or the spaces on Mighty Bell, or even stretching way back uh, to to Ming or uh, Facebook groups, something like that would do to help generate conversation. Well, book club by its very nature tends to be something we think of as a sustained conversation, right? So over the course of some period of time, reading portions of the book, getting together and talking about it. Is that actually kind of a part of our practice now? Meaning there's a degree to which a lot of what we do feels much more scattered, right? So we're responding mm -hmm. to something in particular. We're tweeting. We get a response. There's a conversation that takes place in real time. Do people want the longer sustained? And does this provide the opportunity? Or does it, is that a barrier, the, sort of the sustained week-to-week -week participation? Well, I would say both. Um, I, I think I think people really do want the sustained conversation, um, and they really do want that time to uh, to decompress uh, after reading something or experiencing something. I, we do want that, and I see that in my school every day, and I see that with the people that I interact with um, around the state. Um, there's just a recognition that we don't have the time for that. Um, at the same time, yes, it's difficult to say we're going to hold a 45-minute to 60-minute conversation, and those that are participating, you know, I expect you to go back and watch the whole 
conversation after the fact. Uh, a lot of online courses now, uh, it seems like increasingly when they point you to links of, of lectures or uh, videos that you need to watch, uh, it seems to me though, though they're, they're getting shorter. Now here's three links to three, five, or ten minute videos. Uh, I don't see as many of the 60 minute long videos short of the videos say on, on, on TED. Uh, getting as much, and so when we did do the when we did do the book and switch is an excellent example. You've got that up right now. Um, it started off very well, um, and we had uh, four people, I believe, in the first conversation. Um, but there were a few weeks there where um, it was it was tough uh, for people to make that, and so there was you know, a week where there was just two or three of us. Um, I actually had one week where it was just me talking into the camera. Um, so. That um, it has its ups and downs. I'm I'm really glad you mentioned the MOOCs or or at least the X MOOCs, right? The non-constructivist mm -hmm. connectivist MOOCs and the linking to videos. Um, and I'm interested in the way in which so someone like you as an organizer, the tools typically leverage the ability to scale. Right, so you, you you think about thousands to tens of thousands of people using social media and education. I mean, I think the expectation would be, okay, well, we're going to hold a book club, so it's on Switch, and uh, that that would actually allow for a broader audience across the web. But but maybe the lesson is that it's a set of tools that could be used by people who are, who are typically more local and have more connections. And, you, and the scale doesn't really play out as its strength. Because I've done the same thing. I thought, okay, so I'll start some book clubs. And I just never got the mm -hmm. response that I expected the scale would give me. Right. Um, no, and that's actually a great point. Um, and I actually started, I started on the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, my first goal was I need to read a book. Um, I spent a lot of years not reading, or rather I should say, reading children's literature with my children. Um, once I was done with my master's, it was kind of like, wow, I'm, I, I'm done with this. And I felt very bad about that for a few years. So I said, I just need some encouragement to read. And I actually started with the expectation of, I'm going to put this out on the internet and I'm going to get nobody. Right? Because I'm, I'm this, you know, living in a small little town in St. Joseph, Michigan, and I don't have a lot of followers on Twitter and not a lot of people read my blog and everything, but I do know that I have a nice small network of people here in the Michigan area uh, that I connect with uh, several times a year. And so I just, I, I purposely said I want this to be small and I wasn't worried about scaling, scaling it up and making it large. I really wanted it to be that sort of intimate book club that you might have at your small independent bookstore, which I actually, I, uh, spent six or seven years working at an independent bookstore through college, um, and that's exactly what their book club was. You know, it was five or six people once a month would get together and have conversations, and, and it was just this nice, intimate setting, and they all knew each other, and that's really what I wanted. So even if I got one or two people um, that I knew, uh, that, that was going to be a huge win for me. So in my case, setting the expectations low, which I know a lot of people, oh my gosh, that's we don't ever want to hear that. Expectations need to be high. That actually helped me um, to carry this out because even when I had one or two or three people, that was that was a huge win for me just to get me through the book. 
Now we'll see if I feel that way uh, as we get ready. Uh, this this weekend I'll be sending out the request for the next book to read. I'm hoping for more. That would be fantastic. Um, but, uh, but that's where I started from. Okay, so Kyle said he would be willing to share an ex- his own experience in this. Um, as we were talking, he said yeah. that he was able to do this, a local group at school division, plus they opened it up to some others. So Kyle, if uh, I've given you mic privileges, you click on the talk button at the top left below Ben's image, and if we hear you, we'll know it's working. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> so tell us what you did. Um, so I'm a woman. <laughs> so first of all, I'll just clarify. I know my name is very confusing. Um, but uh, I um, was inspired, I think, and maybe I participated in the flat class virtual book club um, with Vicki Davis and Julie Lindsay last spring. And so I wanted to do the same thing with teachers in my school division. So I actually went through our professional learning office. And teachers that participated got minimal, but they got recertification points. And so that kind of gave me a solid chunk of about 10 to 15 teachers um, that signed up through the school division. And then I just tweeted and advertised and um, worked through the Global Classroom Network with Michael Grafton a little bit. and. Um, got a few more people in that way. And so um, that was kind of a nice balance of people that I saw you know, re- fairly regularly and were kind of, um, you know, I think felt loyal to me in the sense of like, oh, Kyle's going to ask me if I'm coming to the virtual book club <laughs> next week. I better read um, okay, versus just the people that were kind of out in the Twitter scape that you know, might drop in and might not. But you know, even in that group, there are a few people that pretty much came I'd say probably to five of the seven sessions or something like that. So um, that was a nice balance for me. Kyle, what tools did you use? Um, I used um, both an EduBlogs and then Blackboard Collaborate. Um, and that was um, Vicki Davis and Julie Lindsay lent me a room um, so that I could use that tool. And and uh, the, the, the tool, so Blackboard Collaborate, the, the the environment we're obviously in, uh, it sometimes has a little bit of a learning curve for people or a barrier. Did did you find that that was problematic for anybody? Yes. <laughs> I mean, there are definitely people the first session that were completely blown away and, and overwhelmed by it all. And if I run one again using that tool, I would definitely um, do a little more work up front to make sure people were more comfortable with the tools and maybe even just really slowed down the first session more so that um, people felt welcomed by it and not just kind of overwhelmed. On the other hand, though, I'll say that that was um, most people that were overwhelmed were also really excited about it and really wanted to learn it and um, immediately saw all the potential that it had. So the second session, you know, we, we, I was very conscious about slowing things down and, and walking through some of the tools more. And, and I think from there, it, it got better. Kyle, I wonder if you would talk briefly about kind of how you managed each session. Was it chapter by chapter? Was it, did you prepare questions or the like? And then, Ben, if maybe you could kind of comment back and talk about how you chose to organize Book Club 106's discussions. Um, sure. Yeah, I, I wish I was more constructivist about it, probably. It was probably pretty directed. My, you know, for the first time, I think I was pretty anxious about having too much dead space or maybe not enough, not being prepared enough. And so I think we did about 
two chapters a session and we met every other week. Um, and that was also just selfish on my part. You know, I've got young kids too and I didn't know how often I could, um, you know, hold the, hold the virtual session. So anyway, so we did about two chapters each time we met. And on the blog space, I would um, put some questions there ahead of time and also just to have a space where I could advertise on Twitter, you know, upcoming session and, you know, this is what the chapters are about. And then, um, yeah, I prepped, I prepped questions and um, I tried to always have a co-moderator who I would send the slides to ahead of time so they could kind of look over and see how it went. The other thing I found right away was that um, I was the only one talking a lot. <laughs> and so trying to build in pieces that people felt comfortable. So doing a lot of stuff with the whiteboard where I would kind of say, you know, which of the following tools have you tried before? And people could either circle things or put little check marks next to things. And I found that that made me feel like more people were participating that weren't ready to get onto the microphone. Um, and then as the sessions went on, we did use the breakout group um, feature in Blackboard Collaborate, and that was very positive. I mean, people really liked that, and they said how it forced them to talk, whereas before they were really just kind of sitting and listening or reading the chat. And so um, that was a that was a positive. That was a great description. So Ben, could if you could you sort of address the same issues? And, and then maybe talk a little bit about um, Google Hangouts and the choice of Google Hangouts and positives or negatives there. Yeah, sure. Um, I uh, I actually wanted to, um, to to try and push that connectivist uh, uh, as much as possible um, because I I know that I can be um, slightly domineering in uh, conversations. Um, so I used uh, Google Moderator. Uh, which for some reason is not showing up on the site right now. It's all broken, unfortunately. Um, but Google Moderator is a is a really nice tool uh, to throw out ideas and questions, and then uh, you can invite other people in the group to submit responses. So very similar to like a, a Socrative or uh, um, or one of the other uh, a poll anywhere that type of uh, response tool. But then it also has this nice little thumbs up, thumbs down feature. So I use that um, every week. We take uh, a chapter or two, depending on the length, um, and uh, I think switch. We broke it up into sections, and then uh, we would just for the whole week, as people were reading, encourage them to go and list questions or topics in the Google Moderator, and then other people could go and uh, thumb. I encourage thumbs up. Not really any thumbs down, but I encourage thumbs up and uh, people to respond to those questions or to post them on their own. So then when we actually got together the night of, I looked at the Google Moderator and I took the uh, the top three uh, uh, boat getters, I guess you could say, the one the ideas or conversation uh, starters that had the most thumbs up. I took those and used those to help uh, moderate the session. Um, and then that was also nice because people that weren't able to participate in the video were able to at least participate asynchronously through the Google Moderator and uh, put some replies and things there. So I pulled up one of my own Google Moderator links, but uh, it seems to pull up, but I don't see any data in there. So I think you have to actually. Sure, be, I, think well, I think you have to be logged in on your browser to your own Google account to have it show up. So we may not be able to display. I just sent the link. Let's see. Yeah, I just sent a link in the chat. You could try that one. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to do a share here. Let's, let's try that and see if that works. 
Ooh, so we'll have to start sharing. Give me a second and I'll try and figure it out. Okay, so um, okay. so one of the things about the difference between sort of Blackboard Collaborate and Google Hangouts, aside from the fact that Blackboard Collaborate is, and WebEx and these others are a little more complicated, right, and so there's, there's more learning to take place and there's more sort of visually going on on the screen, is that they are uh, tools that, that often have been designed for classroom work specifically, and so they tend to do a better job, um, especially with more than 10 people. Right, so Google Hangouts is great. The moment you go on air, you then actually have sort of two separate chat conversations. You have your small group that are in the Hangout, and then you have the chat that's underneath the YouTube video. Um, what were some other sort of technical things that you found about Google Hangouts that, that would be useful to people to know in terms of thinking about holding the virtual book club? Um, well, actually, the same thing that Kyle said. It seems like no matter how hard you try, there's just this there's this technical barrier between people connecting um, in, in a room like this, in a situation like this, um, uh, via via video. Um, and so the biggest barrier was, first of all, in order to do Google Hangout, you, you got to have a Google Plus account, which thankfully Google has made easier. Uh, just in the few few months uh, since we uh, finished up our second book, if you have a Google account, that's your Google Plus account. So that was easier. Um, but then getting people to, to understand uh, that there's a certain platform you need to be on. Uh, there are certain features of Google Plus Hangouts that you could do um, on the desktop that you couldn't do in the iOS version uh, or on the Android version. I think that's different now, uh, but for a while there you couldn't do a Google Hangout on air on an iPad. And one of our participants was trying to connect for a couple of weeks and she couldn't, she couldn't make it happen. So uh, bless her heart, she was watching the videos uh, for a couple of weeks on her own afterwards. Uh, so getting people to understand it's a much better experience if you're on the desktop um, and you've got a Google account and then just figuring out Google because it's not as easy as Skype where we exchange uh, we exchange our contacts and then we can go ahead and, and converse or even as simple as this where you get a link and people all get dumped into the room. Um, uh, Google likes to change things around. So one week the little blue button for hanging out is right up here in the corner and then the next week it's over on the other side or somewhere else. So that was that was one of the limitations or the biggest hurdle. Uh, but after that I found the Google Plus Hangout to be really uh, a nice way, a nice place for for that face-to-face, -face, you know, just like Skype, something like that. We can all see each other. We can, uh, you know, we can sort of gauge uh, how the conversation is going um, based on those nice visual cues that you would have in a, in a regular face-to-face -face environment. Yeah, I think that's important. I mean, I'll turn my video back on. I, I had it on at the beginning of the show, but I turned it off because I'm not in a in a well-lit place. I'm in, in New York visiting and seeing an apartment that's just got low lighting. But there is something really nice about Google Hangouts in terms of seeing everybody who's in the Hangout, even though it's a limited number of people. It's still, I think, up to 10, right? It is really nice to be able mm -hmm. to see everybody in that, in that Hangout. Um, and I can use Google Hangouts on my phone. So I have an Android phone and an Android tablet, and it works quite well. Although I had a laugh today because I was being interviewed in a Google Hangout, and the Hangout app went through the update process in the middle of the interview, so then actually kicked me out oh, no. and 
you know, to, to restart the app. And I thought, okay, that's sort of like the last thing you want. <laughs> okay, you know, figure that out. But you know, this is a, this is a small <laughs> team at Google, and it does make it like say Blackboard Collaborate. You know, is used to be Illuminate. For all its, for all that we whine and moan about a commercial company providing a service. There is a revenue model, right? So you know Blackboard Collaborate is going to continue to work. They have to make sure that it's working for all of these schools. Whereas Google Hangouts, I mean, Google can, Google can turn that key off at any point in time, like they have just done mm -hmm. with um, Reader, right? Google or, Reader, or yeah. Google's um, start page. What was that? What's that called? Um, uh, I Google. I Google, right? So uh, something yeah. that some of us felt like was sort of central to a lot of our practice, especially Google Reader, all of a sudden can just go away. Yeah. Oh, no, that's, that's a very big concern. And I actually had that happen to me um, uh, a few years ago. Uh, I got really burned. The social bookmarking site of choice that I chose um, had uh, a problem. Uh, apparently, it was a one-man band sort of a thing, and there was a problem with the database, it became corrupt, and he basically lost everybody's bookmarks. And that actually burned me on social bookmarking for quite a while uh, until I finally got back into Digo. Um, but yeah, that is a concern. Um, as I'm finding out now, you know, with, with this Google uh, moderator, it's, the tool is there, it's great, but it really hasn't been supported or updated recently, and I can't really seem to get it to embed in Google Sites too well anymore. Um, but the one thing I did bank on is that YouTube wouldn't be going away anytime soon. Right. I got my fingers crossed now that I've said that. Hey, so Linda asked the question in the chat. She wanted to know about if anybody had been uh, doing virtual or online book clubs with students, especially during the summer. So Ben, I don't know if you have an answer or if anybody in the uh, room actually has an answer. Feel free to raise your virtual hand. That's the third icon over in the participant box, and just it's a hand you could click on it. If there's anybody who would like to address that, and Ben, have you heard of anything like this? Have you had any, seen any success in doing student book clubs? Personally, no, I haven't seen that. Um, I, I have seen there is uh, one book club. I'll put a link here called the Nerdy Book Club, and that's actually facilitated by. Uh, another teacher here in Michigan, uh, Colby Sharp, and an educator down in Texas. Uh, and they do a traditional blog style um, where someone reads a book and they go ahead and they give an overview of the book and the questions and uh, sort of the, uh, the topics that they feel uh, might, be, um, might be really suitable for a book club. And they're very inviting. We've got this nice thing here. It says, want to be a nerdy blogger, sign up here. I would assume they would be welcome to having students, especially student, you know, secondary students, uh, middle school or high school, uh, participate and add to that. Because uh, they have quite a list of uh, nerdy book bloggers in, in the blog world. But I have not seen any student ones. Maybe someone in the chat has. So Terry's uh, got a raised hand there. Terry, either turn your mic on, click on the talk button at the top left, and we'll see if. Um, so your mic goes on. If we don't hear you, it means your mic's not counting. Hello. Oh, can we can hear you. There you are. Hi, I'm Terry. I'm a third grade teacher here in Caledonia, Michigan. And a friend of mine over in Brighton, um, we just tried to do a um, online book club between our two third grade classes using Beverly Cleary books. 
And we are both novices at Google Sites. We want to try to figure out how to use them. So we were stumbling our way through it. Um, Erin, Mrs. John Andrea, the third grader on the other side of the state, she led the discussion through Skype. And she taught both of our classrooms through Skype how to get on and create their Google site. Or actually, she created the site. But she mm -hmm. talked to them on how to join the book club. And she shared the site with each of the different groups for the Beverly Cleary book. But I will say, uh, number one, it's been a bit frustrating. But that's the best part about it. you got to find your way to get through it. Because then when you get to the other side, you go, now, why was this so hard? Because um, eventually it gets easy. But when we started, and one of our biggest frustrations right now, if we have three, three students from both classrooms reading the same book on the same Google site book club account, um, they, can't all, they can't all work at the same time. So if you're trying, she set it up like the seven keys to comprehension. So each tab was, um, one of them was about what connections did you make. Another tab would be about what questions do you have. And we would have the kids edit. And they would go to the edit part of Google site on that tab. And they would enter their questions or their comments or their images, whatever they had. But they couldn't, only one person could do it at a time. So if three in my class were trying to do it, one would be typing, and the other one would try to type in as well. And it would say, student A is already typing. Do you want to kick them out? OK, that created all kinds of havoc, because they loved kicking each other out. <laughs> and it would erase everybody's work. So there were some problems with it, but nothing that we can't figure out what to do in the future and, and make some adjustments. The idea of the online book club between two third grade classrooms has been fabulous. And they're loving it. And they're encouraged to read. And they love sharing. They love posting their pictures. They love writing on their marker board tables their ideas. And then they take pictures of that and post that. There's all kinds of things we can do with it. Um, mm -hmm. So it's been good. But of course, it's the end of this school year. And now we need to rethink how we're going to do it. Because that has been frustrating, the kicking them off stuff. Yeah, I saw Chris in the chat mention Kid Blog, and I've actually been working trying to introduce more teachers in my district to uh, blogging, and we've had some success uh, actually at the, the third grade level and the sixth grade level. Got a lot of teachers there that like to blog for some reason, and they've had a lot of success with that. So that way, the students uh, in a few of the third grade classes going back and forth to each other, they'll write up a post one week, and it's the other classroom's job to respond to that in the comments. And then they'll flip in the following week. Classroom B will be responsible for putting up the post, and the first class will respond. And that way, they don't have to run into the kicking each other off. That's a really great idea. I was going to ask the question about the asynchronous piece, right? Because do you have a discussion forum? You use Google Moderator. I'm assuming people can make comments, I think, on a Google Moderator question with votes. Mm -hmm. But it's not sort of highly intuitive the way like a Ming would be or a Google Groups would have been. Yep. So I like the blog solution. Um, somebody in the chat here, let's see. Kyle mentions VoiceThread. I hadn't thought of that, but that seems like that might be kind of a brilliant way to elicit comments, mm. uh, especially for younger students. Um, uh, Carolyn says, use a wiki. Oh, I, Go ahead, Ben. Yeah, I, I was Actually, I was just going to say, yeah, she said use a wiki. Uh, and uh, my eighth grade uh, science teachers, I've been working for the last couple of years working on some challenge-based units 
uh, where the students have to work collaboratively in wikis. And at first everything was great, and then they ran into the same situation with that you always have with a wiki where only one com person can edit at a time. And actually this year, a lot of those eighth grade teachers have shifted over to Google Docs. So I was just working with all of my English language arts teachers uh, at the eighth grade level on a big multi-genre collaborative project. And all of their groups, they gave them two spaces. They gave them one shared Google Doc, and they gave them one shared Google presentation. And they used the Google Doc uh, for all of their writing, note-taking, annotations, paste, copying and pasting links, and they could have that conversation there in Google Docs. The teachers just ask them, before you write something, just put, you know, put in brackets like your initials or something, so we know that's your part you added. Um, and then in the Google presentation, as you assemble your final presentation, you know, put your little name at the bottom of each of your slides that you're working on. So they have these two different environments that actually work out very well. Carolyn mentioned that some of the wiki services have a discussion capability. Uh, I used Wikispaces quite a bit, and there was an, the discussion tab. But it wasn't always intuitive how to get there, although it does provide for that. I mean, even Digo has discussion forums and capability. But it feels like in some ways, um, well, you're just cho you're choosing to take people to a specific place. Go ahead, Ben. No, I, I, I think I, I think you're really close to it. Um, in, in some cases, it's it's the in, whether or not it's intuitive. But I think in, in many cases where when you when you get something as simple and elegant as a Google Doc, we're all right there. We can type, and sure, it might be a little crazy after the five or six of us all try to type at once. But once you've had that, and you're all typing and writing and chatting in real time, I think sometimes, especially for older students it's almost a little difficult to take them back and say, no, let's go back to this structure and, and click over here on this link and respond. Not saying they can't work, because I've seen teachers at my high school do amazing work with Google Groups uh, to generate online conversation. Uh, but there's something about the simplicity of, of uh, a Google Doc. Okay, so I'm going to be the old guy here, and I'm going to say, Google Docs is kind of exciting, and it's exciting to see other people typing. But sometimes it becomes so freeform and unstructured that it feels as though it's not productive. Is that just me being an old guy? Nope. Nope. That's you being a good educator. Um, I tell I, I, I tell teachers if you're going to have more than a couple people working in the Google Doc, make sure you have some type of outline or you have some type of rubric. Uh, so for this, the, the ELA project that I mentioned, the multi-genre project, uh, we actually developed a sort of like a, a, a notebook, so to speak, a template Google Doc that had an area for this is, this is your task, remember this is what you need to be doing, and here's where you should be keeping your notes. Um, and then here's a few guiding questions that they pulled out of the curriculum guide. And then they even had, uh, we created a section for the students to create their own guiding questions for the assignment. So before they started working, um, they they had to show the teachers um, that they were addressing, you know, that they were, had a plan to address all of this, you know, your topic, and your uh, addressing the teachers' questions that they provided, but then also generating some of their own groups guiding questions, um, so that there was some sort of structure there. Okay, interesting. I'm wondering if anybody in the audience has any more questions about the technical or kind of the. Uh, 
the use of tools and the like, because I want to jump a little bit toward a, a more philosophical discussion. But before I do so, is there anything that anybody wanted to, to bring up related to these kinds of organizational or tool-related issues? How many people could you chat with in a Google Hangout? I think the limit is 10, right, Ben? Yeah, I believe the limit is it, the, the number of people talking on the panel is 10, but you can stream live to uh, an indefinite number of people. So the Hangouts on Air goes through YouTube, but those people can't actually interact chat-wise with the, the 10 who are in the uh, immediate circle, right? Uh, correct, yeah. If you're not invited to the panel on the Google Hangout on air, then you can't participate. You can't participate via video. However, uh, on the YouTube page where it embeds the streaming video, there is a chat, so you can actually live chat with the participants. Okay, which means that the people in the Hangout actually have to keep track of two chats. There's the Hangout chat and the YouTube chat, which is actually yep. then sort of double video bandwidth for them who are doing that. Okay, so a couple quick questions here. Uh, uh, Rhonda wants to know, how many of your group were men? Uh, actually, I was just starting to type uh, the answer to that. And Rhonda, um, there were more men in the group than there were women, but the women were more dedicated to the group in terms of its, uh, uh, help providing responses in the Google Moderator. Um, watching the videos after the fact um, and, and, and showing up. Again, the groups were really small. Some nights there were just two or three of us. I think at the most maybe we had four or five. Uh, but there were more men. Um, and maybe that speaks to my, just my PLN and uh, the, the people that I've generated because I did this all based just on Twitter, just tossing it out there. Um, now this summer uh, for this next book, when I put it out this weekend, I'll actually be inviting my own staff to come and participate, um, and we'll see we'll see if that changes anything. So this is interesting. Uh, Linda talks about today's meet, and I hadn't thought about this, but today's meet is a is a kind of collaborative writing tool, sort of back channel tool. So you could theoretically hold a Google Hangout. You could you could broadcast it, and then you could tell the participants, both in the broadcast and in the actual Hangout, not to use the internal chat, but to go to today's meet and use a more universal chat tool so that everybody, in fact, could participate, even though only 10 videos could be seen. You could actually have a broad platform of conversation that included people beyond, like here in Blackboard Collaborate, right? You could have 100 people. They can all participate in the chat. You have a single chat which allows for that kind of um, larger group. 140 character. Oh, does today's meet have a character limit? I don't know. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it has 140 character. This is good. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> uh, so okay, so this is a good segue for me, right? Because the technology <laughs> becomes the technology in and of itself becomes kind of addictive or engaging in a way that that. Uh, I can spend hours configuring my Android tablet or phone, right? And I can justify that this is actually making me more productive. And the truth is it does. There's an incredible amount of data, information, and things that come through the phone. But there's also a degree to which that engagement 
can blind me to larger picture questions. Right? Questions of, uh, is the conversation worth having? How am I spending my time? Uh, what's really going on? So there are some big questions here, right? You know, a big question would be, do teachers have enough time to read and do professional development? And we can figure out tools to create sort of forums for this, but is there a deeper question about the ability for teachers to actually spend time reading books that would inform their practice? And, and you obviously started, it's not obvious, but I know it, but you started Book Club 106 because you wanted to be doing more reading. Mm -hmm. Has it made a difference for you? And is this actually the solution? Or should we be talking about sort of a deeper issue of making sure teachers have time to do this kind of PD? Um, well, to answer the first question, yes, uh, it, it has made a difference uh, for me. I've, I've read more books now than I have in, in the last two, three years, which for those of you in your audience that read a lot, it's a very, very paltry sum. Um, uh, but just the fact that I've read, you know, a couple books now and had that conversation um, encouraged me to go grab another couple books. And actually, I've actually gone ahead and, and uh, picked up some uh, fiction books. I'm reading The Hobbit right now with my daughter. Uh, and uh, that for me is unusual because I'm not the type of person that will usually reread books, fiction or nonfiction. Um, so, so, so that actually I can see some of the changes. Uh, happening there. Um, but to the bigger question of is it going to pull teachers in, I'm not sure. I'm starting to see some more teachers in my district, and again, I'm, I can only speak to my own experience, I'm starting to see them participate more in Twitter chats. Uh, uh, and uh, That's encouraging. You know, if they can dedicate an hour a week to a particular Twitter chat, then it's certainly feasible that they could you know, donate an hour a week to a conversation about a book, then of course the question is, do they have time to read the book? Now in our district, our administrators are huge on book clubs, and usually one or two of the schools will have a book uh, that they're reading as a part of their professional development through the year. So I'm hoping, uh, so I know that teachers will make the time. It's just a matter of, uh, will they make the time to read something on their own versus something that they're getting professional development? credit or hours for. I want to make sure I don't miss anything in the chat if anybody's got a comment here that we need to, to look at specifically. I'm going to ask the next question, but then I promise to read back through the chat. Part of what's interesting to me about the use of technology in education right now is that it feels like the history of educational technology, or at least computerized technology, has not necessarily been a liberating force Right, producing sort of independent thinking, but has often been sort of one more way of keeping track of or doing kind of behaviorist, Skinnerian kind of tracking, right? Or um, tasks that get assigned. Go, go use the computer to do this, and then come back. Web 2.0 feels as though it has this huge potential to focus on voice and agency and the kinds of things that Skinner didn't really think existed, right? This independent self that makes decisions outside of external forces. What's the balance there? Uh, you know, are we doing a good job of, of getting to this core potential of Web 2.0 in schools, or, or are we, do we tend to use the tools the way we've used that tech in the last 20 years as just an extension of kind of carrot and stick education. 
Um, yeah, I actually just wrote uh, about a week or so ago. There's a link in the chat if you want to see my thoughts about that, about the uh, the revolving door of uh, technology and education. Uh, and this actually was a DS106 assignment. I had to make an animated GIF, so I got this wonderful image of this this door just going uh, stuck in this perpetual forward, backward, forward, backward motion. And I think there's a lot of uh, really fancy, expensive digital pencils in the hands of our students and our teachers. Uh, we are very quick, educators are, and I put myself in that boat, we are very quick to reinvent, um, or, or rather not reinvent, we're very quick to substitute uh, traditional analog practices with digital practices. Um, and typically, you get to the point where teachers start to augment, and, and I'm gonna, I'll use the SAMR uh, um, metaphor for those that are familiar with that. Um, they get to the point where they start to augment or adapt or modify before something else happens. There's, oh, oh, now there's a new piece of technology. And so we kind of start all over again with that. Or something else comes along and you haven't gotten to that point where you're starting to augment or modify or really redefine what, what, what you're capable of doing before people start looking and going, well, that technology is old. Uh, and I see the debate with um, interactive whiteboards, you know, and iPads, and people going, "Oh, well, the interactive whiteboards are terrible," and, and uh, people get, you know, they get a lot of denigration, and that discourages people from trying to push forward and finding, really redefining what they what they can do uh, in their classroom. I don't know if that answers, like, yes, what's possible. Um, it did, uh, I, I got caught in the chat. This is no, no, that's okay. That's okay. Um, um, uh, um, so Jen mentioned that she started a thing called the main idea. I wanted, and she, because she put the link in there, oh, yeah. education cool. book summaries. Um, Kyle talks about a vibrant face-to-face -face book, reading young adult fiction. That brings up a really interesting thing for me, which is I, I tend to talk about engagement trumping content. I'm going to turn off the audio here. Someone's turned their audio on. Uh, I, I talk about engagement trumping content, but I didn't think about that for educators as well, right? Which is the temptation would be to read an education book, mm -hmm. like a book on pedagogy. But uh, I would love to read, I love the dystopian teen fiction, right? So the idea of doing something that's fun, that's not necessarily another assignment, probably is a great lead into kind of building a practice around book discussions. Oh, yeah. Uh, if anybody else saw something in the chat that I want to call out, please feel free to do so. Yeah, I think someone earlier in the chat uh, mentioned, I believe it was Kyle that mentioned that they have a book group, uh, their teachers, and they read young adult fiction. And that's fantastic. I love that. I would love to do that. I keep throwing uh, books like that on the, the DS-106 uh, list. I would really love to read uh, Confessions of a Wall of uh, Confessions, True Confessions of a Wallflower. Is that what it is? It was the one that uh, uh, turned into the movie. And people keep voting it down. They they love their teacher books, their their nerdy teacher books. So I I go with the group. Well, that's funny because I did I've probably done the same thing, right? I picked uh, Yvonne Illich, I picked um, John Dewey, right? Okay, things that we feel like and and I and I am interested in. But I'm, I was sort of thinking, okay, there are a lot of these books that we talk about, but have we actually read them? 
You know, do we really know what they are? And so right. maybe it would be fun to just pick a book that's sort of a popular new book that's not necessarily one that um, is a, a, a feel-like-we-must-read book. Right. Well, actually, uh, in the, uh, Jen in the chat, she just asked, how do, how do we pick the books for, for which, which one will be read for the book club? Um, actually, this weekend, uh, for those of you here on the site, you'll see it. What I do is I throw out a Google form that has a few suggestions for myself. Here's the kind of books that I'm either a couple books that are on my shelf or I'm interested in, and then I'll throw a, a, an other, and I'll give everybody a week to just suggest books, and then I'll take that list and I'll throw it out as a Google form and say, let's vote on which one you guys want to read, and I'll give it another week. So there's a little bit of lead time setting it up, and I really want to try and be as democratic as possible. Um, and uh, and then from there, whichever one gets the, the highest vote, we go ahead and we read that one. Um, but like I said before, it seems like you know we, we gravitate towards those education books. I would really love to read Ready Player One, which is this fantastic dystopian, almost Hunger Games-esque book. Uh, I believe it's a, it's a young adult book um, that uh, uh, takes place in sort of like this dystopian 80s version of the future um, where people play video games. So like the Hunger Games, right? We only have limited resources, but people are playing video games to compete for them rather than, you know, killing each other, which is nice. Uh, but that's all I know about the book, but it sounds... Interesting. I'd love to read that. This is really fun. Okay, so we've just got a couple of minutes left. Um, there's some. There are some good comments in the chat. If there was something you wanted to bring up, that's Ben or anybody in the audience, about online or virtual book clubs or this kind of reading in a Web 2.0 world, let's do it now. We've got a, a minute or two to do so. Ben, is there anything that we, you want? We were hoping we would talk about that we haven't talked about yet. No, not really. I mean, you know, this this is all has just been an exploration for me. And and as someone else mentioned earlier, uh, that was chatting. I believe it was Kyle. Uh, you stumble through a lot of stuff, and that's that's okay. That's, that's it's all right to do that. I, I kind of look at this as a way to show students and show other educators that hey, we can we can learn with the best of you. We don't have all the answers. Okay. Hey, Ben, this has really been fun. Thanks for doing it. I know that uh, you've worked it around family time, and I appreciate it. Um, thanks, all of you, for coming and for the comments, and the recording will be up uh, within about an hour from now. I'll get it up on futureofeducation.com and at stevehargon.com. And don't miss Larry Ferlazzo next week on self-driven learning. Hey, thanks, Ben. Well, thank you, Steve, very much for having me. I, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are. Feel free to continue the conversation uh, either in the Mighty Bell, which I'll put the link back up again, on my blog post or directly with Ben. And Ben, go ahead and put some information in the chat if people want to get in touch with you directly. Sure, happy to do that. There's that Mighty Bell link. Okay. Take care, everybody. Bye now. Bye-bye.